Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is uh, John Duke Anthony. Three first names there, easy to remember. I'm the president and CEO of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. We were established in 1983 as a non-governmental, non-profit uh, uh, organization with a strategic vision and an educational mission. <clears throat> the strategic uh, vision is to place America's relationship uh, with its Arab friends, allies, uh, partners, and its Middle Eastern allies, friends, and partners, and uh, Islamic world friends and partners and, and, uh, and allies on a firmer foundation than it is at present, than it ever has been, or is likely to become, unless enough good people, to quote Edmund Burke, or paraphrase him, on all sides uh, work together uh, to accomplish uh, an objective such as that, which is the enhancement and the advancement of the well-being of, of humankind. Now, today we come at a slice of that uh, with regard to uh, the overall strategic and defense uh, uh, components, uh, but they're not the only ones, and they are to be seen in terms of a background context and perspective. Uh, the overarching ones, the strategic ones for all of humanity is to avoid wars or to end wars. And the other side of the coin is to prolong peace and, and to bring parties that are in the gray area in between at, uh, closer to peace and, uh, and away from war. So the strategic vision is that to put us on a firmer foundation in terms of war and peace matters uh, economic matters, uh, uh, political matters, and this is where the rub comes in, and uh, commercial matters, <clears throat> and defense matters. Note that I did not list the uh, uh, democracy uh, with a capital D or little d. I didn't mention him, human rights, gender rights, civil rights, and, and the like. Uh, they were in there too, and indeed more ink is spilled on those uh, concepts and the emotive aspects that define them and underpin them than the other four, the other, other five. Uh, today we're going to touch on mainly uh, the defense and the strategic aspects, but they're not uncoupled, untethered to the others, uh, the commercial and the political and the, and the economic. <clears throat> now we have two specialists <clears throat> who've long been in the field and none of us uh, can claim to be an expert. If any of us are described that way, we know the person doing the description is smoking something. Uh, at best, we are specialists, we're students. Uh, we have a degree of expertise, but that's not the same thing as being an expert. We're all, as it were, enrolled in a university from which there's no possible graduation. <laughs> Only on the best of days do we get a murky uh, incomplete. Uh, now, our specialists today are going to be Dr. Anthony Cordesman and David uh, DeRoche. And it's keying off and keying off uh, an, uh, a regular assessment of the entire region from Morocco to Muscat, Baghdad to Berber, Algiers to Aden, Aleppo and Alexandria uh, in between. Uh, America has needs in all of these countries in all of these regions and sub-regions. We have legitimate concerns, uh, legitimate interests, 
and legitimate uh, foreign policy and foreign relations objectives. Now, Dr. Quartersman's been at this for a, a long time, and I ask that uh, you try to find a copy of his uh, magnum opus in this regard. He has other, uh, he's multi-published, multi-volume, especially uh, working uh, as he has for decades now with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Uh, but he's also served in the office of the Secretary of Defense. He's been the Defense and Foreign Policy Advisor to the <clears throat> late uh, Senator and uh, uh, Presidential nominee for the Republican Party, John McCain. And he is a frequent briefer, uh, not just to uh, the executive branch, uh, but also the legislative body uh, of our nation. Now, in preparing for my doctoral exams, uh, a speed reader specialist said, you know, you can do yourself and everyone a favor if you do two things seriously and take at least uh, half an hour to do so. One is 15 minutes, focus on the table of contents of what that work is all about. And the publishers and the readership, those with uh, time limitations, uh, want to see what is this all about because they no, do not necessarily have the time, the need or the interest to read uh, a book from uh, cover to cover. And the second is the index. If a book does not have an index, I do not purchase it. An index is uh, laborious in terms of its compilation, but it is a goldmine in terms of what that work is about and a guide therein uh, to uh, whatever it is you're looking for and many things you're not looking for uh, that you didn't know you didn't know. So in Dr. Cordesman's uh, work, uh, strongly recommend that you read uh, the table of contents. And in the table of contents, you'll also find knowledge and understanding. You'll find information and insight. You'll find keys to analyses that would not otherwise be easy to come by. Indeed, they're hard to come by. Some of it, or a fair amount of it, has to do with new terminology, uh, as a new vocabulary, new lexicon here of, of, of the field and the specialization. And that's pertinent to policymakers and those dealing with public attitudes, public uh, actions, and uh, public positions. Uh, here, for example, I'm just going to give you a smattering of them. And for the first time in 58 years of being in this field, I'm going to use my glasses in a public affairs uh, presentation here. Uh, ponder the following. Uh, here's perhaps the greatest takeaway for the speed reader there, that the dominant regional national strategic objective is often regime survival and internal security, not, italics on not, national defense and military effectiveness. That will come as a surprise and a disappointment to some, uh, but reality is reality. And facts are facts, and facts are seven things, and they can bite you in the fanny if you ignore them. And in this particular region, uh, they've done so over and over and over. One of Dr. Quartersman's uh, late deceased uh, prominent preeminent colleagues was fond of saying, look, uh, we've gotten to be pretty good 
<clears throat> at shooting ourselves in the foot. But why do we have to excel? At the safest spot in America. America. And I just nearly got killed. But uh, I had some technical feedback there. Uh, this colleague of Dr. Porter's used to say that uh, we've become adept at uh, shooting ourselves in the foot. But why on earth do we have to excel at reloading faster than anybody else? Uh, with regard to the terminology there, ballistic missiles was not necessarily in most people's vocabulary, even specialists. Uh, 30 years ago. It certainly is now. Uh, now that uh, was new uh, or even conventional long-range attack systems. I'm pulling it out from the uh, table of contacts now. But ongoing uh, constant continuity here uh, is the dynamic and, uh, and operational dimension of privileged access uh, to advanced weaponry and to military technology. In the United States, this is heavily driven by domestic politics. In China, it's uh, domestic politics too. All politics are local, but it's domestic politics of a different kind. Uh, China does not tolerate the intrusion, interference, and uh, on uh, disproportionate impact and effect of other countries' needs and concerns and interests uh, on its uh, national strategic objectives and foreign policy positions. We do, our political system is, is porous and anyone who denies that uh, uh, is a fool. Uh, Counterterrorism remains uh, part of the jargon and it has been now for uh, more than a generation uh, as has counter extremism and the two are different. Terrorism is one thing, extremism uh, is another. And you can see all extremists are terrorists and all terrorists are extremists, but there are people who are mainly terrorists uh, and, and that more than anything else and that people who are mainly extremists, but would shy away from being uh, tarred with the label of being a terrorist. Volunteers and mercenaries, non-state actors, and one need only look at Iraq, need uh, look only at Yemen, need look only longer uh, at Lebanon uh, to see what we're talking about there. Uh, but newcomers in terms of volunteers, such as Tunisia. Uh, some of you may have read that some 8,000 Tunisians went to Iraq and Syria to fight with, with ISIS. Who would have thunk it uh, even five years ago, uh, let alone not longer uh, than that? And then you have the, the areas of cyber uh, security and informational operations and warfare and attacks near and through and adjacent to the Hormuz Straits that people would not have thought of before. And on the mercenary side, you find people as far away as Morocco serving national security functions in the United Arab Emirates and uh, elsewhere. And with regard uh, to the counter -pro uh, proliferation and proliferation, uh, this was the ostensible reason that many gave why we had no choice but to at attack, invade, and subsequently occupy Iraq. That has not by any means uh, gone off the table there. With Iran, of course, it's uh, front and center on the Israeli narrative of what they would have be the American narrative. 
You even had the prime minister of Israel come to the United States and uh, in effect demand, and he received a joint session of Congress uh, uh, to circumvent uh, the commander in chief of the United States national uh, uh, defense uh, structure. Uh, you have uh, situations of human shields. Uh, human shields uh, oftentimes come when people have no other resort or now they're using it as an effective resort. Think Gaza, think of the West Bank, think of Israel uh, colonization and its colonies in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, no longer in, in Gaza though. Think of new actors such as Turkey, uh, who would have thought uh, uh, 10 years ago that Turkey would be a player inside the center of uh, Arabia and the Gulf, particularly in Qatar and, uh, and aiding the national defense structure in, in that particular uh, country there. And the changing role of European states. Only in recent days have you seen the European Union uh, uh, cough up, belly up to the boss, so to speak, with uh, several additional thousands of troops. Uh, while the atmosphere seems to be receptive or the moment politically propitious for the United States to withdraw forces from Afghanistan uh, by, by May the 1st. Uh, this is just a few of the items on the menu of the Dr. Cordesman's work. And to uh, critique it, to ask questions about it, to probe and to prod, uh, we have uh, uh, David DeRoche, who's a Associate Professor, uh, professor at the National Defense in, uh, University, a think tank, if you will. I'm not sure they're think tanks, but they are certainly agenda tanks uh, of the, of the uh, uh, U.S. Department of Defense. He's a prolific uh, briefer, lecturer, and escorter, as well as companion uh, to uh, counterterrorism forces that are being trained in Jordan and in Arabia and the Gulf in particular. Uh, Dr. Cordesman first, and then uh, David DeRoche in a seamless segue. Thank you all for joining us today. We're going to have what promises to be a serene massage. Dr. Cordesman. Thank you very much, John. Uh, let me say that I am essentially briefing on a study which has grown over time, and the newest version will be up on the council's website, as well as the CSIS website today. And what I was attempting to address were the overall shifts in the military dynamics of the MENA region. And I say the region deliberately, because what I was looking at was not simply the broad trends but the trends that affected each subregion and each country. And when I talk about those dynamics, if I can have the first slide, let me highlight a number of points that John also addressed. It's the dynamic slide that follows, this one, yes. The problem I think that we face is we are coming out of a period of long wars out of a time where we have prepared for conflicts with Iran, where we have lessons to learn and at the same time, you are watching major changes taking place, 
not only in US forces and the forces of powers like China, Russia, or the NATO allies, but in each in its own way of the MENA countries. One problem I think we do face is the range of potential conflicts that we see in the region and that each country may face over the coming decade. John mentioned counterterrorism and extremism. Sometimes it is a matter of popular protests which are not violent and which do not address extremism, but simply call for change. Throughout the region, there are tensions between virtually all of the MENA states and their neighbors, tensions that involve outside powers, that involve what we call gray area operations, very low levels of conflict, military gestures, deniable actions, the use of non-state actors or proxies, even other states as Iran has used Yemen. <clears throat> and these in some cases, particularly in the Gulf, run a serious risk, as John pointed out, of escalating to much more serious conflicts. Some that could affect the flow of something like 20% of the world's petroleum. Now, when you look at those, and I will come to a brief list in a moment, what is striking is how many changes are involved in these dynamics. But I should also mention that for those of us who are military analysts in the classic sense, you also see countries shifting to much larger paramilitary forces, internal security forces, counterterrorism forces, and often these are structured as much to protect a given ruling elite as they are to deal with counterterrorism or extremism per se. Many of these forces are in their own way, both positive and negative. In many countries, they have a repressive element. They may actually increase the risk of extremism or terrorism because they go too far, they ignore civil needs, they do not really reflect the rule of law within that country, not a matter of Western values or even regional values, but national values. One thing is certain, the role of outside powers involves more than the United States, but in many cases, the United States is the only power that can actually coordinate effective military action at any serious level between the states in the region. It has the intelligence assets that it can share with its strategic partners that they lack, just as they often have far better human intelligence networks. And the more a war escalates or the more the changes I'm going to discuss exist, the more to some extent, at least for the short term, they'll be dependent on the US or Russia, if it continues to expand its influence, or China, if it comes into the equation. The European powers have announced increases in defense, 
But in virtually every case, they have promptly had to cut back. And I can't think of a European white paper in any country that has actually been executed as the original plan indicated in terms of power projection. This means that with arms transfers, advisors, contract personnel that are often vital to operating the actual equipment and units, you always have to assess dependence on the outside when you address a given Arab state. More than that, it isn't simply a matter of addressing the civil causes of terrorism that becomes critical. Military forces are not immune to any of the problems in civil stability. Politics, governance, economic development, the extent to which you establish civil equity and unity are absolutely critical to how effective security forces are. And very often this is being ignored. The idea is you can build national forces loyal to the regime and these forces will be coherent and effective. And the history since the beginning of what was once called the Arab Spring is this simply isn't true. You have to work at effective governance. You have to reduce corruption because virtually every country with a high rating of corruption by the World Bank or other experts has that corruption permeate its military and its security structures as well. You cannot ignore ethnic or sectarian differences. They're critical. But more than that, when you look at total spending, and I provided the figures in the study, the truth of the matter is many countries do not announce their real level of military spending. That's not unusual, that's true all over the world. But the United States, both under the Obama and the administration and the Trump administration often talked in burden sharing terms about Arab strategic partners that did not pay enough. Most are spending at least twice as much of their economies on security forces as we ask of our NATO allies. Some are spending an almost incredible eight to 10% of their economy on military and security forces. At these levels of trade-offs, you are spending money on the military that jeopardize civil development and stability. Your problem in burden sharing is not that you are spending too little, it is you're spending too much. Now, very briefly in the next slide, I've gone into how I've broken out the subregion. So if we can skip on to the next. What you see here are three subregions, and they are somewhat arbitrary. But the fact is that most of North Africa, and Egypt, yes, it is in North Africa but from a military viewpoint, its primary focus is elsewhere. You have in Morocco, a country which basically focuses on its own security and stability, 
but has a very large, if aging, force structure to some extent responding to Algeria. Algeria is one of two countries in the MENA region where the army has a country rather than the country has an army. It has a vastly inflated force structure. It is spending a great deal of its economy on the military and security forces. And so far the political upheavals and changes there have not basically changed this situation. In Libya, and I've put the country in red for a reason, one thing that truly bothers me about looking at military dynamics is the idea that if you have a peace negotiation, you end up with stability or peace. Historically, since 1945, more than half the pieces in the world have not survived five years. And a very large number have simply translated into new sources of conflict or instability. If you do not have an economic plan, effective governance, if you do not address popular issues, sectarian and ethnic differences or tribal differences, a successful peace negotiation may simply be an extension of war by other means, shifting the actors, but not creating a serious peace. And when you look at the Middle East, that's Libya, it is to some extent Lebanon, where you don't have the fighting, but you have very little prospects of stability. It's Syria, which is interesting, I think, largely because all of the various estimates, and they certainly differ, of the Assad regime indicate that state terrorism in Syria has killed far more civilians over the last decade than all of the terrorist and extremist groups in the world combined. We talk about extremism and terrorism as if it was non-state actors. In some cases, that's not true. Iraq has new, more effective leadership. It has many people seeking to create a real peace, but it is virtually bankrupt. It has not developed effective military forces on its own. It has strong elements that have loyalty either to an individual Iraqi leader or to Iran. It's not quite clear what peace in Iraq will be. One would like to be optimistic, but one has to wait and see. And Yemen is a case where Quite frankly, the tragedy is one where you need to stop asking how you achieve some kind of ceasefire and start asking how on earth you could create an effective unified state with a workable economy that can recover from the civil conflicts involved. And here the World Bank and the others warn you that the military dynamics can be very negative. I think the other issue that I find critical, and one could go into the Arab-Israeli and other is, the lack of real progress in the Gulf Cooperation Council. Now that's not true politically or economically in many ways. 
But the fact is, if you look at the study that I have put out, or indeed any of the individual ratings of these countries that go into serious depth, the unclassified data in IHS chains is an example. You have no real Gulf Cooperation Council. In case after case, each country is pursuing its own military and security course. And the tensions between Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE are only part of the story. You have Oman standing aside. You have Kuwait in semi-isolation. You have Bahrain in many ways tied to Saudi Arabia, but not fully integrated into the Saudi command and control and sensor system. In some ways, it's better integrated with us than it is with the threat. The next slide, please. This list is not an easy one to deal with. I do cover it in the study, and John has already hit at a number of the issues. Again, what's interesting is that each of the countries in the region faces a different mix of these problems. Some countries will not be able to afford missile strike systems or missile defense systems. Other countries will discover just how expensive layered air and missile defenses are. Some will have to focus on counterterrorism or focus on the threats posed by their neighbors. Some will watch what happens when non-state actors begin to get large numbers of precision strike systems. But one way or another, long as this list is, virtually every country in the region will have to deal with these changes in some form. And one thing that is particularly striking is how old the inventories of major combat equipment are in many of the countries. An awful lot of the data in the unclassified estimates like those of the IISS are listing systems that the country almost certainly can't actually operate in combat for more than a very brief period if it can actually move and sustain the force. Almost all countries have good units. Many countries have hollow units. And that's particularly true of reserve forces or ones with older equipment. Finally, and John touched on this issue, and I think it's one of concern to all of us. The last slide deals with outside powers. The problem we have here is what is the US strategy really going to be? Are we going to keep up the kind of presence that we have had in the past? Will we fully support our strategic partners when they provide the kind of partnership we need? Are we going to provide them with the help they need to make the changes that I've just outlined? I don't know the answer to that. I think there are good indications from the Biden administration, but you have test cases like Iraq, where we keep talking about a strategic partnership, 
we haven't yet been able to define or even propose in any real depth. The data in the study shows Russia has made major increases, not only in presence, as it has in Syria, but in weapons sales. And Egypt has effectively balanced Russia and France off against the United States when the US has attempted to pressure it politically. China as yet has not made major gains in either arms sales or any clear strategic presence. But its expanding role and its competition with the United States almost certainly means that we face China as much more of a power that will attempt to play a role in the region, partly because of its dependent on petroleum exports. Turkey, I think its ambitions as yet perhaps uh, exceed its capabilities, but it has made real gains to some extent in Syria and in dealing with countries like Qatar and other powers. We still do not know where the Arab-Israeli equation is going in terms of Israel and the Palestinians. I would like to believe that there will be progress, but we've had one set of elections in Israel where we don't know the outcome, and we've had promises of elections within the Palestinian Authority that have not been kept in the past. These are two very important groups that have tensions between them, but the tensions within them are in many ways as serious to the military dynamics. Finally, I've already mentioned the fact that to me at least, the Gulf Cooperation Council is a military failure, not because it does not have very good people in it, and not because there are not many military officers within the individual Gulf countries that fully understand what should be done, but because you have a game of thrones, which is in many ways self-destructive between the country's leaders. And then we have the question of where is Iran going? For all the talk of maximum pressure, if you look at the map and you go from Lebanon to Syria, to the uncertainties in Iraq, to Iran, to our probable departure or possible departure from Afghanistan, Iran is reshaping the military dynamics. John mentioned the missiles, but if I may close, they're only part of the story. I think Iran has demonstrated a steadily better capability to conduct gray area warfare in the Gulf, to take on Yemen and the Houthi, and to provide low level threats and challenges to the US, as well as steadily increase its capability to conduct hybrid naval warfare inside the Gulf. And with that, let me turn things over to David. It's an honor. Uh, my name is Dave DeRoche. Uh, if there's still certain restaurants in um, 
Washington, where if you go there, you get a very nice steak. You get a baked potato, usually that's wrapped in foil and has a lot of bacon bits and sour cream in it. You get a vegetable, which is usually unhealthy, uh, cream spinach or something. And then you get a big thing of parsley on the side. And here today, I'm the parsley on the side. So my role is just to take the questions and to forward them on. Uh, however, I do have to warn everybody, um, whenever I appear with Dr. Cordesman, I always make this point. This actually happened. A friend of mine um, downloaded uh, the updates, which come out periodically. And if you follow Middle East issues in Washington, um, you have to um, uh, read Dr. Cordesman's things when they come out. He was on vacation and he got a $35 roaming fee for doing that. So uh, be careful. Uh, you know, it's important. But if you're traveling, make sure that you're using the hotel Wi-Fi to download the report. It's a it's a mandatory reference. So we have a couple of questions. Uh, I'm going to use the, the privilege of the chair and ask about Iran, your last point, which is, do you feel that um, uh, the Trump administration policy of maximum pressure, was it an, an absolute failure as it's generally considered now? Uh, was it uh, something that just didn't have time to take effect? Or was it met with uh, maximum resistance that was perhaps unsustainable and has just given the impression of um, uh, failure, but actually the record is more mixed? I think the record is mixed. The problem was you put immense pressure on Iran, but you didn't give it any alternatives. There really was no clear US option. And this is a problem I think often in US diplomacy and in dealing with these issues. You didn't offer the Iranian people or the Iranian moderates a clear alternative. What you had initially were 12 impossible demands, which asked Iran to do everything at once. And you set the stage for failing at almost every level, because when you finally got around to saying, well, we didn't really mean it, it was too late. Now, did we in many ways hurt Iran's economy and the Iranian population? The answer is yes. Did we in some ways undermine what passed in Iran for moderates by essentially reversing a negotiation which at least had some options? I think the answer is yes, we probably did. And we also pressured the regime. So I'd be very surprised that it's coming, if it's coming election allowed any moderates to run in any serious way. Did we actually alter their military behavior? I think if anything, the regime was pushed back on the revolutionary guards. It was pushed into a more extreme and unfortunately relatively effective internal security structure, which became not only more repressive, but more efficient in doing it and it found new ways to propagandize and conduct information warfare. We certainly created every possible incentive for Iran to try to increase its influence in Syria, in Iraq, and in Yemen. Could we have done better by sticking with the JCPOA? I think the answer up to a point is yes, 
But John raised the issue, and I think David, you certainly are all too well aware of this. What we didn't anticipate was that they would have precision strike capabilities with ballistic and cruise missiles anywhere near as quickly. And if anything, we pushed them very hard into changing their military structures in ways which turned out to be actually pretty effective. Yeah, thank you. Uh, next question comes from the field, and um, I'm going to go. I'm going to go out of uh, sequence just because this is so closely. Uh, when I when I read through the literature, when your name most commonly appears uh, in scholarship and uh, in writing from from the field as well, is the idea of the glitter factor in weapons purchases. Uh, that that is that's probably uh, uh, right now your most uh, enduring legacy to the scholarship on the thing. Uh, how, has that been attenuated? Has it been modified? Uh, do you think that people are taking, uh, that regimes in the, in the um, region are taking a more uh, sophisticated approach towards weapon systems or is it still the glitter factor rules all? Well, I think the problem is when you use the glitter factor, you are often talking about the Arab Gulf states uh, particularly the southern Gulf states, and you are talking about Egypt. Israel is not a case of the glitter factor. I think it has done a very good job of integrating the most advanced military technologies into an effective force structure. Now, one key question is, when the UAE buys something like the F-35, Given the size of the UAE, its land and its naval forces, that could be a really major asset to an integrated GCC that fully integrated its air power. And the UAE, for example, has done a good job in many areas of operating its equipment at the small combat unit level. But the glitter factor has a couple of other implications. One is that you have to trade it off against overall force effectiveness. Many countries are now buying less advanced systems simply because they can't buy the cutting edge. They don't have access, uh, at least as yet. Others are now just beginning to make place the orders and they have for things like missile defense, which is extremely expensive. I don't think it's a glitter factor, David, but the whole idea that individual Southern Gulf countries buy their own approach to missile and air defense in military terms is absurd. You have to, particularly as a small country, have an integrated approach to dealing with these defenses, or you simply create a mess of very different approaches where you are going to leave windows of vulnerability because you're buying some systems and you're not buying others. The other aspect of the glitter factor is that some of it doesn't glitter. Some of it's rust. It's really old, worn equipment or improperly maintained. But as we've seen in Iraq, 
and particularly in Afghanistan, but we see it even in a lot of the wealthier Gulf countries, they can't maintain, repair, or sustain a lot of what they have in their inventory. It's impressive in numbers, but it's not backed by the force structures and capabilities to actually operate it if they become involved in any kind of sustained equipment. And sustained isn't a very long term. It can be a matter of days. I think one example when you go back to the 73 war is quite aside from all the qualitative and training and other issues, if Israel could fly a minimum of two and possibly four times as many sorties per aircraft for the initial days of conflict as its Arab opponents, the force numbers and the glitter factor really didn't matter as much as sustainability and force effectiveness. And these are areas where particularly now, as we discovered in Iraq and Afghanistan, but I think, well, we don't publicize it. It's all too clear from some of the orders. Many countries also can only really operate their most advanced systems now by relying on US or other foreign contractors. And the question in war is how much can you depend on the contractors? Are they going to stick around when they're actually having to deal with combat? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I think uh, some of the some of the scuttlebutt on the uh, uh, recent uh, drone and missile attack on Dahran and Ras Tenora uh, uh, is that actually the ballistic missile wasn't aimed at the Aramco compound, but rather was aimed at another compound that houses BAE personnel. That's certainly where the uh, uh, damage felt. And I really take your point about the importance of holistic defense capacity building. Um, for those of you who are Chatham House members, I'll actually be speaking on that tomorrow. Um, uh, not talking about weapons, but about things like professional military education, development of critical thinking. So a little bit of a spot there. Next question uh, from the field. This has dominated the uh, Arabic language news cycle for the last day. Uh, the Saudi uh, proposal for a ceasefire and uh, ideally that would end to a comprehensive peace in Yemen. Um, the reports uh, the Saudi proposal uh, was leaked uh, supposedly, supposedly by the Houthis, so it may or may not be an accurate report, that this Saudi proposal reflects what Tim Lenderking offered a few weeks ago in the Muscat talks. Um, what do you make of this? What do you see the prospects for this? Is this, is this a sincere uh, proposal and does it offer a roadmap to peace in Yemen or will that festering conflict continue to fester? I think we have to be very careful. The question you often have in these issues is can you have some kind of stable piece of exhaustion? Nobody's won. Certainly the Saudis haven't. The Houthi certainly occupy a very important part. They probably can with time drive the remnants of the government that people recognize outside Yemen out of its one last bastion. But there are many parts of Yemen where other factions and elements are fighting. 
John, I think, is a real expert on Yemen, but uh, I'm struck by one of the famous quotes that Saleh had that ruling Yemen was like dancing on the head of snakes. And the fact is that forming a peace in Yemen is like dancing on the head of snakes. Even if you can get very different elements to agree on a ceasefire or the shell of a peace, how long does anything hold together? And I think the humanitarian reporting on Yemen is certainly broadly correct. And it's at a scale of suffering and economic decline and problems in governance, where when you say we're going to have a peace, it reminds me a little of Afghanistan. We went through virtually all half of the peace process in Afghanistan without ever saying what we thought a peace should actually be. And nobody has defined as yet a meaningful peace proposal for Yemen that could tie together all of the factions and problems that are involved. So I would hope perhaps there is an option, but the Houthi, as you point out, not only promptly reported on the details of the proposal, they promptly attacked it. And I think that's the great problem. And it's the same problem in Syria. If Assad gains control of the country, having committed as many, basically, crimes against his own people, as he has, and having created these divisions, what is peace in Syria? If we're going to have a stable Iraq, how do we address the economic issues in ways that deal with the sectarian and ethnic differences and the basic problems in equity. So these peace issues affect all of the areas where there are major divisions and conflict. Okay, thank you, sir. Um, in your remarks, you rightly highlighted the fact that uh, people in the West, and particularly the United States, sometimes are at a disadvantage because we focus on just military aspects of security and really ministry of defense aspects of security when in the region it's much broader there are paramilitary forces i'm wondering if you can talk about any possible security implications of the um uh, super cargo carrier that has um uh, managed to beach itself uh, almost perfectly perpendicular to the Suez Canal. Is this a, a one-off? Do you think this is something that people will draw security implications for and might uh, lead to an enhanced emphasis on protection of critical infrastructure? Or is this just a systemic aberration to be experienced and moved on from? Well, we need to remember that several centuries ago, Qaddafi actually mined the areas in the Red Sea. And we have seen other attacks on Saudi infrastructure that have been surprisingly successful. I think the problem we face is that if you are conducting gray area warfare, you can easily escalate to take out some critical infrastructure facility or link. If you can have a third party do it, it's a little hard to counter-escalate, although of course you can, but then that creates the question of how many counter-strikes and strikes occur. 
And I think your question is particularly valid because obviously the canal is a critically weak link of vast strategic importance. But if you take out, say, the desalination plants along the southern Gulf Coast or the power plants with precision strikes, if you take out even one, you create a whole new specter of what escalation can be. If you are dealing with smaller countries and they lose water purification or they lose a critical power plant, that kind of intimidation, and it doesn't have to be an actual strike Suppose basically you pick a relatively unimportant target, but one where a precision strike weapon demonstrates you can hit a much more important target. Or you use things, and this is certainly a concern for the uh, US Naval Command in Bahrain, if Iran was to use smart minds selectively so that they would only strike against tankers near a given critical oil facility, you run up against the problem of exactly how do you retaliate? And it would be just as complex as if they used the Houthi or they used Hezbollah or some other faction. So I think this whole idea of horizontal and vertical escalation the issue you raise is a critical one because we have reached the point where countries like Iran have already taken those chances. Uh, a comprehensive answer, I thank you for it. And um, uh, building on that, I'm gonna slightly recharacterize a question from the audience. Uh, they asked about incoming missiles and what that shows for critical infrastructure. Um, and there's another question that talks about uh, you know, does this demonstrate, for example, that the investment in high range air defense, uh, Patriot Thad, uh, has failed or is there just another approach? Um, and I, I should I should ask, I get asked this question every time I speak about like, you know, would S-400 have stopped drones attacks on Abcake, things of that nature. So um, the evolving nature of infrastructure protection, the performance of particularly the Saudi and the UAE forces against um, precision guided missiles and drones and uh, is there a technological solution easily at hand? Well, there's certainly no technological solution easily at hand. A single round of a modern missile defense system is far more expensive than the missile that would be attacking the target that it's intended to intercept. These aren't cheap systems, and most have a limited footprint. Israel is about the only country I know of that is so far deployed an actual layered air defense system, although Saudi Arabia has certainly acquired elements of it. It's a little premature to criticize Thad or Aegis, considering that neither of them has been deployed, but Aegis is for essentially advanced long range ballistic missiles. THAAD is a missile defense system. 
you have to layer in separate air defense systems. And over time, you probably will find much more sophisticated and evasive air breathers, that is low altitude missiles. So this is an arms race. And there is no one approach today to layered air defense that's actually deployed anywhere in the region unless the US has brought in Aegis or brings in something like that. So whatever happens, at least for some interval, the Iranians have the temporary advantage as do the Houthi, as long as they're being supplied. But <clears throat> rather than focus on the fact, <coughs> excuse me, that air defense systems don't kill missiles, which is essentially a problem with the way a lot of people have looked at this. You really have to ask, what does an actual effective missile system cost? If it's layered with air defense, what does it cost? And when can you get it? Because dealing with today's capabilities, they're simply not designed to deal with this threat. No, you're exactly right. I, I, um, I'm kicking around a paper where I'm talking about the bureaucratic problems with short range air defense. And when we're talking about um, protecting against drones and cruise missiles, it's really a problem of short range air defense. And historically, Western militaries have viewed that as an adjunct to maneuver forces. So it's, a, uh, it's not a strategic capability like ballistic missile defense. It's seen as something that is a, an adjunct to tactical ground forces. So it always gets pushed back. And only now with the development of cheap, accurate drones capable of carrying militarily significant payloads, uh, people realize there's a need for short-range air defense, which has been neglected over probably a generation and a half. So uh, I concur with you. Um, this is a really tough question from the field. And, and, and if you can solve this, I'll promise you a, a post-quarantine cigar and glass of my favorite Hebridean um, uh, beverage. Um, we all know the famous uh, boast from an Iranian member of parliament that Iran now controls four Arab capitals. Uh, we all know, you know, um, and I guess I, for, for those who are not as close to the field, it's uh, Beirut, uh, Damascus, Baghdad, and Sana'a. Um, we also uh, know that the uh, longstanding fears of the Shia Crescent, how can we counter this? How can we unrest the uh, control, you know, which uh, in at least some of these countries has acquired a pretty significant, if not a if not a veneer of democracy, you know, in some instances, even, you know, an actual uh, imprimatur of democracy. How can we counter that and unrest uh, the Iranian control of Arab capitals? I don't think Iran does control Arab capitals. But I think that it has exploited tensions within Syria. It's created a valid strategic relationship. Does Assad receive instructions from <clears throat> Tehran? Somehow I doubt it. Talking about the Hezbollah as if it wasn't capable of independent action and pursuing its own goals, I think is equally unrealistic. Uh, you look at the Houthi and the Houthi are essentially are they using Iran or is Iran using the Houthi? Remember that 
for the Houthi to exploit their ties to Iran to convince Saudi Arabia that it can't win a war doesn't mean that they are somehow tools of Iran. I think these relationships are far more complex. They're far more dependent on both sides benefiting. And I think that they are adaptive, which in some ways means that they may be more enduring. Obviously, you do not have a Shiite sort of majority outside Iran, which is naturally subordinate to the idea of a supreme leader. That's scarcely a principle of most Shiites outside the country that can enforce the supreme leader on the people. Uh, you don't have unified structures here where you are talking about a willingness to somehow take risks or pay high penalties for ties to Iran. You may find joint action if Iran proposes something that seems to benefit both sides. There is probably some dependence. You can trade arms shipments and money to some extent for actual actions. But I think this whole idea of the Shiite Crescent is a little like the idea of a united Christianity supporting the Crusades. Uh, <laughs> Christianity was probably more of an enemy in some cases to Christianity than Islam was in during the Crusades. And I think this is a very delicate, uncertain set of relationships. We need to be a little careful about throwing terms like terrorist around, like carelessly assuming that there aren't careful negotiations and relationships between Iran and the countries where it has influence. And as I vaguely remember it, there is this, this obscure, tiny little country called Russia in Syria. Now, admittedly, nobody takes it seriously anymore, but who knows? Someday it may actually have an impact on international relations. <laughs> uh, Russia always comes back. Let me, let me shift to a, uh, a more prosaic bureaucratic issue. Um, so the UN has a special envoy for Yemen. The United States has one now. Um, we kind of have duplicated that in Libya as well, uh, although until recently the UN special envoy was Stephanie Williams, who we all know from her outstanding work in the Middle East as a US diplomat. Um, is this structure uh, dysfunctional? Is it duplicative or is it actually helpful? What do you see as the possible strengths and weaknesses of having dual US and UN special envoys for a, a theater of war or a, a region of conflict rather? If what you are attempting to do is to resolve the conflict, the UN can play a critical role as kind of international organizations, and we tend to forget this. I think that if we had focused more on the World Bank and less on US aid in Afghanistan and Iraq, we probably would have been much more successful in creating both conditionality and effective plans. But you couldn't do it alone. 
you needed also to have a strong, clear U.S. role supporting the process. Now, if we see one negotiator in the U.S. proposing a completely different response than the U.N. without having a clear strategic reason to do it, that is duplication and it's pointless and it's a rivalry which is destructive. But I don't think that's the case of most of these negotiators. I think very often, the more countries that become involved, that give a peace issue or a conflict resolution issue a high profile, the more chance there is of actually bringing people together. And I think that given all of the people we have put into the military involved in these countries, having all of two different peace negotiators perhaps is not an overwhelming number. Well, I can tell you, you know, we all know Tim and uh, he's so smooth. He won't uh, uh, get ahead or get crosswise with um, uh, anybody from the UN. I mean, he, and, and if he, if he does, they won't know it. They'll think he's doing them a favor. Um, could you speak a bit about domestic U.S. opposition to weapons sales to the region, particularly to the GCC countries? And uh, if that has um, uh, damaged regional security, uh, damaged U.S. interests, or has it actually um, been a positive uh, for that in terms of reorienting people on, on uh, uh, U.S. values and international values? Well, so far, when we talk about this opposition, it has not blocked massive increases in weapons transfers over the last five years, particularly to the Gulf states and our strategic partners. The discussion probably has been useful in sending signals that there's no carte blanche, that they do need to pay attention to the niceties not so much of copying US values and structures, but at least taking note of them and being very careful. And again, one has to say in some cases, the fact that you are putting pressure on arms sales may also lead them to moderate some of their internal security measures, which have been counterproductive and probably done more to aid extremism and terrorism than to hurt. But we also need to recognize that our strategic partners in most of the world are not us. John made this point to start. Mm -hmm. You really do have to say, how much leverage do you really have? We've seen that Egypt could easily go to Russia and France for arms and did. We have seen a lift of the, lifting of the UN arms embargo on China and Russia. If you put too much of the wrong kind of pressure on, you simply may enable our opponents and do nothing to serve the kind of causes involved. I think that this is not a matter of blaming human rights organizations. They perform a very useful mission. It doesn't they don't have to have everyone listen or respond. <laughs> but I think when it comes to the US Congress, it's a different story in the US executive. 
you have to compromise and you have to focus on the art of the possible. In virtually every case, there are areas where you can make progress. If you focus on those, you can often get a country to respond because you're not challenging the regime or its security values or its structure. If you ask them to become us, you almost certainly are going to fail both to have a strategic partner and to make the changes you're calling for. Mm. <clears throat> Wonderful. The art of the possible full marks for the Rab Butler uh, uh, callback. And I think there's probably seven people uh, uh, in the world who would still recognize the name of Rab Butler. That's not a call. Final question for you from the audience. Uh, something about China. Obviously, uh, the vast commercial enterprises, the Belt and Road uh, uh, Initiative, which seems to have um, uh, focused in part on not, not just the broader Middle East, but also uh, the Gulf and the Levant in particular, and the establishment of their first major overseas military base in Djibouti. Um, is this something to be feared, welcomed, countered, or co-opted? Well, I think it is almost certain that China will systematically expand its competition where it can. It will very quickly be able to sell much more advanced arms into the region. You mentioned the S-400. Well, you may have a Chinese version of that. And it could be very attractive if it was priced properly. They already have exported missiles, not the major ones, except to Saudi Arabia, uh, but, and those are aging to the point of incapacity. But certainly a lot of the shorter range anti-ship and other systems are critical. They not only have a military base in Djibouti, they have a port. And they're expanding port facilities in Pakistan. There are talks about a strategic arrangement between China and Iran. It's a very uncertain arrangement because China, if it did that, might well find itself alienated from the Arab Gulf. But we have seen Russia sell the S-300 and much more advanced air defenses to Iran. And it did it without much by way of successful protest on the part of the Arab side. And we have a China that has very clearly said it is competing with us to either equal or surpass us as a global power between 2030 and 2040, depending on which of the statements are involved, and which issued a report actually yesterday systematically attacking the American political system, its record on human rights, its record on racism, in a kind of open confrontation that I don't think we have seen with the possible exception of the Alaska meeting uh, before. I think that one way or another throughout the world and in the Middle East in particular, we face a Chinese challenge. And here I think it is important to remember the strategic importance of the Gulf particularly. 
That 20% of petroleum exports is absolutely critical to China, South Korea, Taiwan, and Japan. And what is kind of interesting is that as a percentage of trade and our GDP, the manufactured goods we import from Asia, dependent on Gulf oil, is a significantly greater economic tie between the United States and the region than our imports of petroleum ever were. So we may have achieved some kind of quasi-independence in energy, but in practice, give or take some rather strange trade sanctions, we certainly have not achieved independence in trade. Yeah, a good point. Um, although, uh, uh, particularly in textiles, uh, when textiles are automated, uh, there's going to be a revolution like we haven't seen. And uh, uh, our smart guys at the National Defense University say that that's maybe five years off. And that will um, probably be extremely disruptive in Southeast Asia and in China uh, once we can automate textiles. Well, we have um, about 15 minutes left, and I think that it's uh, only fair. I, I want to first off thank you for a comprehensive, wide-ranging uh, session of bull in the ring. Your remarks, of course, are, are as one would expect from the touchstone reference. And I think it's, it's not at all uh, unreasonable to describe you as a reference. Um, so the, that, of course, was illustrative. But then to take such a, uh, a wide-ranging series of questions, uh, playing bull in the ring, uh, if you remember that old football drill where um, uh, one lineman holds a ball and gets in the middle or a ball carrier gets in the middle of seven linemen who just basically batter him and tries to punch his way out. Um, uh, and of course, performed admirably as one would expect. Uh, so let me pass off to the founder and president of the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations, Dr. John Duke Anthony, for a summary and for closing remarks. Thank you again, Dr. Portisman. Pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dave. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Cordesman. Um, this has been, as we promised at the beginning, a cerebral massage. And uh, as Dave DeRoche's uh, questions uh, supplemented what uh, Cordes, Dr. Cordesman uh, presented and uh, varnished them and came at them from different angles. Uh, there are also some not omissions or deletions, but uh, additives, so to speak, uh, supplements uh, to that two uh, remarks and, and, and uh, presentations and commentaries. And, and they could consist of the following. Uh, one is uh, background context perspective. Uh, take the chrono chronological aspect of 1947-48. Uh, the United States prior to that time and the entire region that we focus on today had not one single enemy under the implications of that. And take it further, the United States had not one single serious adversary. Take it still further, one United, United States had not one single effective critic uh, in this entire region of what the United States was, is, uh, was becoming, had been, 
meant for these nations, their leaders, their governments, their elites, and what uh, they hoped uh, could become their relationship with the United States. Uh, but if since then, in many senses of the word, it's been downhill, and it has, certainly on the enemies, the adversaries, and the critics uh, uh, stage of actors and playwrights. It's also been uh, uphill. And there's no denying that the United States uh, with these countries uh, has made a difference, not alone uh, by ourselves, but with these countries, certainly in uh, nailing the last uh, nail in the coffin of the Red Army in Afghanistan. Uh, we did this in partnership with uh, Pakistan, with Saudi Arabia, geopolitically with the uh, six GCC countries that met quarterly and in every one of their uh, communiques and their positions and their unified stances, uh, they stood with the United States, uh, not in opposition to the United States. They also stood uh, with the canons of international law and the uh, principles of the United Nations Charter that there can be no acquisition of territory uh, by force and the right to self-defense and uh, articles 47 through 53 of the UN Charter. And uh, this is uh, the, uh, the meat on the skeleton of that uh, organization and particularly uh, article 51 that each and every nation uh, that is sovereign has the right to self-defense. Uh, so working with these countries, what did we do? Uh, you can say militarily, yes, we had registered successes, and we did, uh, but not without the help of France, not without the help of uh, Great Britain, uh, not without the help of tiny countries like Italy and Belgium that helped with the mining and demining aspect of the waters of the Gulf uh, uh, during the latter stages of the eight-year-long Iran-Iraq war. Uh, so we helped to end a war, one of the longest in the 20th century. Uh, we also prevented the um, Iranian Revolution from expanding itself to the western shores of the Gulf. And uh, the third one, of course, we, uh, and driving that last nail in the coffin of the Red Army in Afghanistan, that was the last chapter, almost the last footnote, if not the last page and sentence of 70 years plus of international communism as the major threat uh, to Western government systems, structures, values, principles, ideals, you name it. Uh, so that's been part of the uphill uh, aspect, not the downhill aspect that's made a defining difference. If we come at this uh, arithmetically, uh, there are 22 uh, Arab countries, 28 Middle Eastern countries, 57 members of the Organization of the Islamic uh, Cooperation, the Islamic world's uh, highest political uh, entity. Uh, what we're looking at just in terms of the Arab region, there are seven, seven countries where if one had a frequent flyer, one might be hesitant to uh, get on the aircraft, notwithstanding the pandemic in social distancing and physical distancing uh, to go to uh, those seven countries. 
that are enmeshed in uh, two kinds of oil, uh, turmoil, uh, and of course that other kind. Uh, but seven does not make a majority, does not even make a plurality. Seven out of 22 doesn't even come close to either of the two. And as schoolboys and girls, we were taught uh, to arrive at generally valid principles uh, that, that the consensual aspect of what is factual, what is true, what is honest, what is right, what is good, uh, uh, is the path to be followed, uh, not the aberrations, not the exceptions, because of what they are, namely the aberrations and exceptions. So we cannot say that the region is going to hell in a handbasket when it's true of seven, uh, but not the other 15. Just if you focus on the Arab region, uh, let alone the 28 uh, countries of the uh, Middle East and the 57 members of the organization of the Islamic Conference. Now we come to terminology uh, and language and words and concepts behind them. Uh, we need uh, to do work on this if we're to have an honest dialogue, if we're to have a respectful one. And here, when we are talking in English, not in the language of the peoples of the region, we have to be especially careful because we are one of the elephants in the room uh, that, that uh, everybody in the region has to pay attention to what America is and does and does not do and, and might uh, be doing. But America not, does not have to always pay attention every day uh, to what any, uh, let alone all of these countries in the region are doing on any uh, uh, given day. Uh, take, for example, the, uh, what we've been focusing on here interchangeably because we're Westerners, we're specialists, we're talking in English, and we're using the word security and defense interchangeably as though, as though they are. And in our mind, conceptually, psychologically, procedurally, programmatically, operationally, they are interchangeable, but not in the region. <laughs> there's one word for security, there's another word for defense, and they're completely different. Uh, security has to do with domestic issues, internal issues, uh, police uh, guarding powered uh, plants and bridges uh, and the like. Uh, defense is something quite different. That's external, air, land, and sea. When we use the two interchangeably, uh, we understandably and misunderstandably confuse our listeners uh, who are not as fluent in uh, English because it's not their mother language. We have to realize that there are more than a million people in the six state region of uh, Kuwait, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates and Oman uh, that have graduated from American institutions of institutions of higher education and have had a minimum of four years of Thanksgiving dinners and rubber chickens uh, with the uh, American families and communities in which they lived and worked in, and studied. Uh, other than maybe 60, if one is rounding them off to the nearest even number, Americans have, have obtained four-year degrees at Umar Kura, uh, mother of the uh, villages in uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, studying the Quran and, and uh, Islamic teachings and Hadith and Sunnah and uh, things of that nature. Uh, but there are no Americans, not one. 
that has graduated uh, and done four years and obtained her or his BA or BS uh, from that region. So there's an, uh, an astronomical asymmetry uh, imbalance in terms of the preparations uh, to have an honest and fruitful and meaningfully beneficial and reciprocally rewarding uh, conversation, let alone a serious uh, dialogue on matters as serious as strategic, overarching defense, economic, uh, political, and commercial issues, uh, in addition to the human rights ones that uh, uh, Anthony Cordesman alluded to at the end. And the latter, of course, uh, is a one-way street for most Americans. Uh, uh, Tony mentioned the, the fruitlessness of trying to have other people be like us or have that be their frame of reference or their standard or their uh, uh, item of, of measurement by which uh, uh, they are like us or not like us. Uh, nothing can be more uh, uh, certain, guaranteed recipe for, uh, for failure uh, because it involves intrusiveness. It involves domestic interference in the affairs of other countries. And this is a no-no from one end of the region to the other. Uh, we would not stand for it. We do not stand for it. We've never stood for it for a moment when other countries have tried to do that uh, in the United States, going back to the civil rights era, when uh, Moscow called uh, the, the reality of, of American racism in places like Birmingham and, and the like. And we reacted viscerally, psychologically, uh, but hardly morally, if you... Uh, uh, come to the scale of empathy. Empathy, putting ourselves in the shoes of others, their souls, their, their situations, their needs, their concerns, their interests, their, their objectives is, is not America's strong suit. I don't think I've ever heard or read uh, Americans being accused of having a surplus of empathy. And yet it's the one thing that we demand of everybody else in the world. No one can get a visa to the United States if they are smart aleck and critical and acerbic and uh, engaging in diatribes about the nature of American uh, values and principles and systems and realities. Uh, one third of all the people being uh, behind bars on the planet being behind bars in the United States. And of course, Americans would count and say, well, that's because we have a more effective uh, police system and uh, law enforcement system well <laughs> that obscures the nature that uh, we have more people breaking the law <laughs> and, and in the need of having laws enforced and then per capita is the case anywhere else on the planet so uh, uh, look in the mirror uh, a lot less self-righteousness which is as well in terms like uh, jihad uh, jihad comes from the second uh, Arabic verb uh, of uh, to struggle, uh, 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 and to struggle, to, to, to hustle, to work hard, to be determined, especially in, in righteous activity. And uh, we have supported people who have been proud to call themselves. And so were we proud of calling them at one time, Mujahideen those who did this, that is the noun of the verb of to struggle, to strive, uh, to hustle, uh, to work as hard and be as determined and persistent as one can. Uh, John F. Kennedy, for example, before he became president, when he was a Senate 
Durr was on the tip of the spear, uh, lauding the merits of the Mujahideen in Algeria as they were ringing down the last curtain of French colonialism in Arab uh, North Africa. And we did the same at the other end of the region with uh, Afghanistan, with the Mujahideen there, whom we armed and trained and encouraged and egged on and, and cheered as they took on uh, the, uh, the Red Army. And we uh, took on the Red Army vicariously with and through, through them uh, to a strategic and a major gigantic geopolitical uh, victory there on the international scale, not on the Afghan scale necessarily, but on the international scale. Uh, that's just on, on the language aspect. And we've slipped, uh, you cannot uh, pinpoint the date, into a we, they, us, them, those, other uh, uh, aspects of our dialogue. There are more than 13 states in the United States uh, that have passed laws uh, that are discriminatory, uh, pejorative, uh, defamatory uh, towards some of the basic principles of, of Islam, uh, which is part of the Judeo-Christian Islamic heritage that we're the descendants of, not just the Judeo-Christian heritage. There's a triumvirate here of the three monotheistic faiths uh, uh, of the Western world. All three of them have their headquarters, have their ancestral origins. Uh, it was the anvil of antiquity in this region, not in the West, uh, that most uh, Westerners' values and principles and ideas and ideals uh, have, have been hammered, uh, not in the West themselves, when one find any, any of the way headquarters there. And in terms of the other elephant or another elephant in the room, we're talking about uh, a small country at the eastern end of the Mediterranean uh, that would have many Americans, analysts and others, practitioners in particular, uh, behave as though the American can have but one bride in the region, can have as many mistresses and concubines as it pleases, uh, but it can have but one bride. And that one bride has insisted on a triad of criteria by which there can be an American robust defense relationship with the region. Uh, one is uh, to determine whether the threat of the country requesting the acquisition of this weaponry or these munitions is legitimate. Uh, sounds legitimate in itself to pose a question like that. Secondly, is the question of whether the receiving country can assimilate that which we would sell or transfer if they were to be allowed, italics are allowed, to procure uh, uh, that advanced uh, defense technology and uh, even conventional uh, uh, weaponry. Look at what the United Arab Emirates has had to uh, uh, undergo uh, with regard uh, to advanced uh, avionics that it uh, thought it would be uh, able to procure if it uh, 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 made comfortable and cozy uh, with Israel, only to find that uh, there's opposition coming from that quarter and it's more ordered advocates uh, among the American polity uh, that they should not be allowed to have that because this would uh, uh, cut away at chip away at the uh, superior Israeli edge and uh, defense uh, weaponry technology and systems and structures over not just its neighbors, but 
the entire uh, Arab region of 22 countries combined. Uh, so that's uh, another elephant in the room having to uh, do with its uh, ability to uh, have access to it, to assimilate it. And uh, no one would, would doubt that uh, the UAE and Qatar and Bahrain and Kuwait and Oman have uh, legitimate uh, needs to believe, to believe that they are threatened, especially when you have in the case of Iran, which both uh, reference uh, resource specialists have made uh, a combat uh, upon, uh, has in its constitution, like no other constitution in the world of which I'm aware, where it is uh, legally, constitutionally obligated to export its revolution and in particular uh, to neighboring countries, those on the Western side of the Gulf. Iran is a neighbor of all six of the GCC countries, plus Iraq, uh, plus five other countries uh, to its north and its east and its west, of which people are not fully uh, uh, cognizant there. And if it's uh, a joke or makes people laugh when Abba Ibn the Gil, uh, gifted orator of Israel's foreign ministry used to say that the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And people would always giggle wherever I heard that. Well, the, 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 the truer version of that is that Israel has never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity to wage peace uh, with its Arab uh, neighbors. You still have on the table the March 31st, 2002, uh, uh, Arab peace proposal. All 22 Arab countries signed off on it, uh, uh, offering to recognize and establish normal relations uh, with Israel if it complied with international law, if it complied with the United Nations dictum of the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by force. And here's where the United States has turned a blind eye and a deaf ear. And as a result, uh, lacking empathy on that front, we'll come to Iran in a minute, and lacking em em empathy on that front, which uh, Dr. Cordesman has, has made allusion to, and so has, has uh, Colonel uh, DeRoche. Uh, with regard to the uh, inability of the uh, United States uh, to follow up on its own words. We talk a good game about believing in the two-state solution. We talk a good game about believing in peace, and so does Israel. But neither of the two uh, does that which is requisite uh, to bring about a settlement that would be uh, uh, just, uh, reasonable, uh, enduring, and comprehensive. We're nowhere near that. These used to be the three words uttered by George H.W. Bush when he was president and James Baker when he was secretary of state. And for doing so, they can, those concepts, which are just, no one can fault them for being less than ideal and less than in keeping with international law. And for doing so, uh, their administration was turned out of office in 1992 when the Clinton administration came in. Uh, so it begs the question, what? On the altar, what would one antagonize one's ally? On the altar, what would one provoke one's, one's partner? Uh, on the altar, what would one alienate one's, one's allies and friends? Uh, consider what we did in 
2003. We're in the week of what we did uh, uh, March 19, 2003, when we invaded a country uh, in violation of international law and the UN Charter uh, that had not attacked the United States that represented no imminent threat to the United States or legitimate American interest. Uh, ponder uh, the implications of that in terms of alienating uh, one's allies, not to mention the external refugees of 2 million, not to mention the domestically displaced Iraqis, uh, the two combined being 4 million, that's one sixth of Iraq's population. The American equivalent being 50 million American lives being ruined by some other country that illegally invaded and occupied the United States. These are some additional dimensions that are perhaps deemed impolitic in the polite discourse amongst people who are running for office or who would remain in office as such. These are just a few of the final comments that could be added to the extraordinarily rich discussion and conversation that we've had about two of America's finest, uh, two of the world's best. Thank you all for listening, looking, watching, and please follow up on the podcast of this. And we look forward to being with you in the coming weeks where we'll be uh, having presentations on Yemen and having presentations uh, uh, on uh, Iran and, and Lebanon, uh, as well as other challenging issues uh, in, in the region. All the best to everyone.